Hi, I'm Jamie Sanchez. Take me to the gun show. And I'm Lauren Fates. Get me a pair of dragon shoes. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. Welcome back, cow folks, to another episode of the Bebop Beat. We are so excited for this one because we're having a fan-heavy conversation with the entire Bebop podcast family. Before we introduce our special guests, though, we're going to do a little bit of level setting. You might remember from our previous episode us saying that we got the Netflix Cowboy Bebop early. Folks, we are officially after that point. As of now, this time of recording, Bebop is out. The whole world has seen it. The fandom is so excited. So I've been online all weekend. I don't know how many of you have either, but just looking at all the discourse out there, checking out what people's takes are. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it terrible? Is it amazing? Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, unfortunately, critic review, about a 50%. Audience review, also about a 50%. But in the nuances, I'm seeing a lot of like, wow, this is a nine. I love it so much. As a longtime Cowboy Bebop fan, I love the texture it adds. In other depths of the internet, we're seeing uh, ones or zeros or negative 20s. It's been all over the place. So today, I'm pleased to introduce Jesse from Sudden But Inevitable and Andrew from Bebop Tabletop Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Hello. Yeah, I got to say, this is uh, just, I'm very excited to be here as a fellow Bebop podcaster. I, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I look up to both of you, Jamie and Lauren, just your your show is a ton of fun to listen to and to be a part of it is a little bit of a podcasting dream come true for me. So thank you. Oh, thanks. That's so kind. Uh, folks at home, you might have heard Jesse's voice before. Actually, Jesse submitted a very cool question and sort of loving fandom comment to our season one finale. So welcome back. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure, I assure you. When I started a podcast, it wasn't a Cowboy Bebop podcast yet. So when we switched over to our Bebop coverage and then I I just started, you know, looking on Twitter for other Bebop things, and I saw your icon, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to make that show, but I am going to make a Bebop show. And I would say I'm three quarters of the way through being all the way caught up with Bebop Beat. Uh, I did jump a little bit ahead just to hear me at the end of it, because you know how podcasters are. So tell us a little bit about both of your shows. I know, Andrew, you do more than just anime commentary. You actually have a gaming component. Yeah. So at Bebop Tabletop, what we're trying to do is build a Dungeons and Dragons-ish kind of game. So Dungeons and Dragons is incredibly popular right now. People love to gather together, pretend to be other people, uh, play a game, roll some rocks, right? We're trying to make a game uh, sort of like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of game, except now I want to be Spike Spiegel or you want to be Faye Valentine or maybe I want to be Ed or maybe... I want to be Ayn and be a cute little dog that's doing a lot of mischief on computers somehow. We're trying to make that game that just has that feeling, that just has that, uh, that beboppiness, right? So doing the same things, we're going through week by week, looking at each episode of the anime and just trying to figure out, well, you know, in the process, we're figuring out what makes bebop bebop because we need to put that in our game if we want to play that way. Hopefully we'll have a fun game at the end, but in the end, we'll have just a fun time making it. Very awesome. We look forward to playing it. 
And in terms of what makes Bebop Bebop, I know Jesse in particular gets to make some really cool comparisons, maybe with a show called Firefly. That is absolutely true. So my show, Sudden But Inevitable, in case you don't recognize that phrasing, is from a quote, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal, which of course is from the sci-fi space western classic that is Firefly. I was watching The Mandalorian with uh, a lifelong friend of mine, and another friend of ours kept messaging me and going, hey man, this is really reminding me of Firefly. And I kept saying, yeah, this Firefly vibes all over Mandalorian. And my other friend, who I've, again, known basically my whole life, went, what, what do you guys keep talking about, Firefly? And we kind of kept looking at him like we thought he was messing with us. Like, there's no way you haven't seen Firefly, especially as a Star Wars fan. But it turns out he actually had never seen Firefly. So I lovingly pushed him through that series one episode at a time and then subjected him to the movie. I'm fully aware of the word choice there. And at the end of that, I thought, I got to keep this going. And I've already got him into the space western genre. I know he doesn't like anime. Maybe I can use space westerns to put him in an anime immersion tank and he'll come out on the other side an anime fan. Now, I don't know that I would say he's come out an anime fan, but I can promise you he has come out a cowboy bebop fan. I would almost call that an, a sudden but inevitable betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, ha- have you seen Firefly, Jamie? I have, yes. <laughs> okay. I I have like a really bad gauge for how popular it actually is. Because if you go to Dragon Con, everyone knows Firefly. It's like a staple fandom. But then if you're out in the real world, <laughs> like in a corporate setting, nobody has seen Firefly. It's hard to tell. Nobody knows about the adventures of Captain Tight Pants, no? Well, I would say that the thing that I love about Firefly is, you know, to compare it to the original Cowboy Bebop, for instance, there, there's one season of it, right? There's one little jaunt through this beautiful, chaotic verse, and there was never a chance for the characters to get worse or do something we didn't think they would do or, you know, for a movie that didn't make any sense from, you know, following the movie before or it, it just never got overdone, I guess. It didn't oversaturate. There's just one little season of it to love. And I, I got to I, I think that that's has something to do with the staying power of both series, honestly. It definitely has something to do with the level of dedication that fans exhibit for those. We've fallen in love with the potential of what might have happened. I always agree with that 100%. Anytime, every couple of years, that like tabloid article goes around where Nathan Fillion says he wants to do another season of Firefly. I'm like, no, no, just leave it back there. Leave it back there where it belongs. I don't think people want more Firefly. I think they want how Firefly makes them feel. And it can only make you feel the way it feels if it stops, which is actually a really interesting transition into Cowboy Bebop resurfacing, putting out a whole new version literally decades later. So our listeners get to hear tons and tons of how Jamie and I feel about this show. Where are each of you at, temperature-wise, on the Netflix Bebop? Well, so I've only watched the first three episodes so far. And interestingly, so I've been watching it with my parents who are visiting for Thanksgiving. But So two people who have never seen this show before have no idea what this is. But 
knew I had to watch it. So sure. From that perspective. So me coming in as somebody that's slowly rewatching the anime right now, we're at episode like six or seven uh, and, you know, coming in very, very fresh into Cowboy Bebop and then watching with people who know nothing about this world or this universe or whatever happens, happens. I, I would say that it just from the first two episodes, it did not really grab their attention. And the same, like, I think for me as well, I think the first two episodes held very much an adjustment period, right? There was a very much a sense of like, oh, is this bad or am I just wrong, <laughs> right? Or was that cheesy or was that funny? Th things like that, that adjustment to the new tone, that adjustment to the new style, uh, the adjustment to the editing, I think was a big thing for me. Like, I would say I'm very, very glad I watched the third episode because after two, I wasn't feeling it yet. How about you, Jesse? How are you feeling about it? So this is I actually am going to key on a couple of points that you made there, Andrew, because I, I think they're a spot on and b partially the exact experience that I've been having. Not to sneak a plug in here, I promise, but I just saw the movie Slither for the first time. I've never seen it before. It's a James Gunn's first movie. And I think the thing I really liked about it was the tone, because I don't really like horror movies at all. And this is definitely a horror movie. But the tone was such that I was like, oh, this is this is a thing I can enjoy. And when we found out that this series was going to happen in my head, I went, OK, this is the sacred cow. This is this is Netflix deciding, OK, nobody likes our live action series. They are universally panned every time they come out. There's a couple of hardcore fans that appreciate them a little bit, but everybody else is sick of what we do in general, I think is a fair way to categorize the sentiment that I've seen online for the most part. So personally, I was immediately apprehensive. I don't use the word worried because it, nothing is going to change Cowboy Bebop, the anime. You know what I mean? It's always going to be there. It's always going to be, spoiler alert, perfect. Even if they make new Bebop and you know it does something with the source material, it doesn't change the source material. So I'm not worried. I was apprehensive, though. And going into this, I watched the first two episodes. We did the um, the early access the day prior to the release, right? They gave out codes in the trailer uh, stream, I think. And the two members of my crew and I all got codes and we sat down together, even in our separate homes, and we watched the first two episodes together. And I think watching it together really colored our experience because partway through it, we started texting each other. Um, the word dude came up a lot. Uh, the word OMG and holy crap. And okay, there's no way they're going to do thing X. And it was, it was 25 messages in the first 10, 15 minutes. I would characterize my overall feelings toward what I have seen, which to be 100% clear is up through episode four. I, I am really loving what I see. I think that it is decidedly a pastiche it is definitely uh not for everyone um which i think is really really okay because anime is not for everyone and noir is not for everyone and you know pick any subgenre associated with cowboy bebop it's not necessarily for everyone as a person that loves everything that cowboy bebop is i feel that a lot of that stuff has been really well translated so far, and I'm I'm open to being disappointed. But so far, I haven't been. I got to say, I hear you so much. There is like a, a weird adjustment period. I had to view the show through the lens of a telenovela or a soap opera in order to really enjoy it and embrace it for what it was. But you're right. 
Who does that in the year 2021? We're not watching those things. So why choose to make that? I think this watch through, which full disclosure, I'm on my third, I think, watch through of the entire series. And I'm finally having a good time. But it took that long. And the only reason I'm having a good time is finally wrenching my heart to just be like, this is what it is and take it for what it is. Once you can stop thinking about was that outfit literally the outfit I saw on the anime? Was that quote literally the quote I remember from the anime? I think you can appreciate it a lot more. But having steeped myself in the anime so deeply, I had a pretty hard time at first. And that's, I guess, my advice to the fandom is try to do a watch through that just takes it for what's there on the screen, not the many different paths they could have taken and did not take. A lot of fan discourse out there that is very much about the path not taken. And I don't know how much that serves anyone like psychologically. It's not helping anyone's mental health. Oh, that's for sure. And the question that I would ask to help if you're if you're feeling apprehensive or you know upset about the series, think about it this way. What did you actually want? Did you really want a shot for shot? Because I, I guarantee you probably didn't really want that. Most people probably didn't really want that. But I feel like what we got was, hey, look, we could do shot for shot. And they prove that right away in the first two episodes. And then they remix it, which to me is the most bebop thing you could do with this, right? It's a remix of an album we've heard a hundred times in 20 years. And they can't just play the same thing again. That that would be, I don't know, that would be a recording, right? If we want to see a live performance of this thing, which is what we're doing, and we got the seatbelts and all, I feel like you have to remix it. I, I be, I'd be really interested to hear what your biggest complaints are about the first two episodes just because I like I said I watched it in pure ecstasy and I I promise you I wasn't watching with a critical eye. <laughs> so to your point about remixing, if you really translate it that way, then the shot for shots are almost like samples. And the samples are somehow the the quality feels degraded to me a little bit just because it isn't an animation medium. It doesn't capture the same energy or it's edited a little strange or it feels a little comical, which I mean it bothers me. Anime Bebop always took itself very seriously, whereas I feel like they're kind of treating this more as a comedy, like buddy cop fun, haha, when their points are trying to be more salient. And it's that constant uh, cognitive dissonance, which I've also mentioned before, that just really keeps me from enjoying the experience that it was intended to be. So in terms of the settings, I really like the look of the Bebop. I even like the CGI shots of the planets and of the cities. And so in terms of environment, I guess my wish would be a show that just knew its limits. And I complain a lot on this podcast about how sound stagey some of the scenes feel. One time where I think they did do an amazing shot for shot is the beginning of this episode, Venus Pop. I love Big Shot. And, uh, The flip version of that, I guess, is Teddy Bomber. They remixed Teddy Bomber into a story that wasn't Teddy Bomber's original tale. And I think we're going to dive pretty deeply into how successful a choice that was. We get the opportunity to see maybe more of Teddy Bomber face to face. 
But does it have to be Teddy Bomber at all if it's not the story of Andy? So let's get into it. Scene one, uh, big shot. <laughs> I want to note on Twitter, Paul St. Peter, the dub voice of Punch, apparently dislikes this. He calls this lame. And I don't know how you could possibly call Big Shot lame when it is the most true to the anime of like anything in this entire live action. My dude, this is what you were doing in the 90s. Maybe that was bad, too, if you think this is bad. I don't know. What do you guys think of Punch and Judy? He, he didn't start with a shucks howdy, though, did he? Right. He went he went hola amigos, which is also from the show. But it's not shucks howdy. If you're if you're throwing me some big shot right now, give me a shucks howdy. Pay the howdy toll. <laughs> they did not pay the howdy toll. <laughs> I have to say, I know there are a lot of us out there that are really appreciative of the fidelity with which they translated Judy's uh, outfit. Defies gravity. I mean, it's either a lot of tape or some like real uh, translucent sheen or something going on there. <laughs> it defies all physics. And and here's the thing, though, of all the pieces from the original anime that you thought might get tweaked, right, just because of the sheer like absurdity of it, this was one of them. I, I was thinking, OK, we'll get big shot, but... The character will probably not have quite so thick of a stereotypical accent, and maybe they'll cover Judy up a little bit. And lo and behold, no, that is not what they have done. They just gave us Big Shot directly translated to screen. And I think that it actually, we get a little bit more of the Judy character early on than, than we got in the anime, right? Because by the end of the Big Shot run in the anime, that's when she started having more lines other than just whatever the show was about. And here we get that right away, which I really like because I feel like it sets up attention going forward in Big Shot all season long. It makes me care this much more about that character because in the anime, I didn't care about her until the end when she got very, very upset. I will say I absolutely love this low budget cable access bullshit and they dressed it immaculately. Everything about it. I adore it. It was the proper way to open this episode. Just get straight to the point. Here's a bounty. And the moment where Judy just goes, oh, shit, like this is real to her. And she like kind of wakes up a little bit. I, I just there's just a little touch there that we don't normally get into the anime. And I really appreciated that. I love that moment, too. And maybe I'm already diving too deep. I may already be going too far into the weeds, but I'll tell you why I love it. I went to school for broadcast journalism. And if anyone were to ever break character like that or cuss on television, you would cut that camera. You would take it away. And so it's actually very funny and charming to me that they went sort of a public access route because it being really amateurish and really like hyper local, probably their college students or something behind the cameras. It makes more sense in world why they would just allow that character to be traumatized and roll her eyes and put on a whole scene and not do anything about it. They justify it. And the goofiness of this whole series works for me best when there's just a little something in there that justifies it, that gives it a reason why. We go from this very literal big shot to this totally new group wedding stakeout. And I loved how sort of confused and delighted I felt seeing this scene like where are they what a weird place to put these characters 
and I'm into it. It gave me vibes, though, like we were going to see Ballad right away. I was expecting the big cathedral window and a shootout and everything. And it just turns out that Jet and Spike are here on a stakeout. I think that that had to be perfectly intentional, right? Like they are talking to us, the hardcore fans say, hey, remember the cathedral? We're at a cathedral now. And, and, and I agree that that pulling the rug out from under us of like, like, you know, absolutely. They should not be doing that now. Don't toy <laughs> this is with episode me. Two. Don't do that. Now. But yes, don't toy with me. Exactly. So I'm not losing my mind. They're not actually wearing earpieces, right? I mean, they are in universe, but there's no prop for us to see. They're just inside. They're just touching their ears. There's like a little cuff along the side of their ear. You see it briefly. No, there isn't. I, didn't I see saw it. nothing. Yeah, I yeah, didn't there's see it a little black cuff. Oh my goodness. I've I saw nothing. Because otherwise, what's Spike having to touch when he's talking? It would make no sense. Right. I, I love the choice not to touch it, to use the back of his hand, because that is real. That's something I've done. <laughs> and this is the second time we're referencing bathrooms. Uh, so uh-huh. <laughs> I know we heard previously on interviews with uh, the showrunner that it was very intentional to make things like the characters eat and be hungry and also have bodily needs. So like, cool. I'm glad that this is set in the cathedral bathroom. Why not? <laughs> Well, and that's true to the series, right? Spike's hunger is a driving force of his character for the first, you know, three, four episodes that were being introduced to him. Um, and the bathroom is where they lock Faye. And the, you know, not to not to go back to the first episode, but the remixed version of the uh, shootout from the movie, right? That's got a guy in the bathroom during the most important part of the shootout, which I think is a definite homage to Pulp Fiction. It, I mean, it, it has to be, or it has to be the other way around. But I feel like they did not touch anything behind their ears. And it immediately, I was like, what is going on? And then here's the immediate next thought that I had. Spike, throughout the original series, is talking about being in a dream that he can't wake up from. The movie itself has been posited to be entirely a dream because it takes place between two episodes of the series that were already established, and it has pieces that contradict those. There are some things in the movie that contradict itself. I, If you go with the aesthetic of a remixed jazz space western dream, there's almost no choice that I feel like can't be chalked up to that in a fun tonal way, personally. Sorry, I'm not buying it. (laughs) I I appreciate the mental gymnastics, but like, I'm here for real (laughs) people. I'm almost all in now on that plan, Jesse. With one twist, the anime series was the dream. This is the reality now. And once we get behind that, we're all in. Like, it's going to be fine. I mean, my pet theory is that everyone died at the end of uh, Toys in the Attic. So (laughs) it's all just Ed's fever dream. (laughs) I think, Jamie, the difference is that I'm not trying to make it work as a Bebop sequel. I'm just trying to make it... uh, I'm trying to make myself understand what I'm seeing because there's no way they watched through the edit and went, oh, we don't need to add an earpiece, right? It's a choice that they clearly made. There's no way that they watched through the plates with Jet's facial hair and went, oh, that looks super realistic. Let's keep it. It's a choice that they clearly made. So that's where I'm coming from. To that end, then, they clearly chose not to digitize out John Cho's contact lens edges in a very, very close up (laughs) scene. Yeah. Yeah. There was a couple of scenes where I was going, are they trying to use his eyes to show us some sort of difference between like settings or flashbacks or something like that? Because I know in the series, we didn't know he had a, a cybernetic eye right away. 
Um, and we actually talked about it in our group chat, and I don't know that it's been resolved for us in our group chat. I don't think it's been resolved up to episode four. Um, but there's, I mean, I can't watch anything that has money behind it and assume that half of it was an accident, right? That just doesn't work for me. I don't know if accident is the word, but I think accepting things for what they are probably the most interesting example of this for me is how I think Vicious's wig looks quite bad most of the time. I think it was a bad choice. And then when they released the Netflix character posters, they photoshopped the heck out of his hair to where it looked silver. And I thought it looked better. So somebody somewhere at least recognized that the choice made on the screen wasn't their favorite choice and they could make a different one on a different channel. And I think we're going to run into that a lot. It's a Daenerys wig problem. Yeah. All right. So this is really going to put this podcast in a place in time because Spike says the line, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack of needles. And I, it really took me out of it. I laughed out loud because there's a movie trailer out right now called Needle in a Time Stack. <laughs> and it's like the worst movie title ever. And right now people are still like passing that around as a meme. So if you're listening to us 10 years in the future, go look that up. I doubt the movie's very memorable. We also see the dragon shoes. And I saw those. They look super fly. I want my own pair of shoes with dragons on them. In regards to the assassin himself, I thought Spike and Vicious were assassins, like enforcer assassins for the Red Dragons to begin with in the anime. So it was really strange to me to make the determination that some other character is an assassin. He's just out there, a hitman. I don't get it. Like, this was kind of news to me. That's also a a critique I'm having as an anime fan. It kind of feels like when your assassins need assassinating, who do they hire? Right? Who assassinates the assassins? (laughs) You know, the assassination assassin. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So to that point, I have to ask, uh, how do we feel about the name Fearless? It's grown on us. It's grown on us. I thought it was very silly when they unboxed it the first time. And then the more they did it, the more I was like, okay, It justifies why somebody would be colloquially called vicious. If that is a naming convention throughout the story, that's a little less weird. But this dude is named Gunther. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. He's not in union. It's different. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I actually really like this fight from a choreography point of view. I think this show really likes a fight gimmick. There's something very Jackie Chan about this is the one where we use the hand dryer as a prop. It's fun. It's quirky. Um, I do still think the choreography is acted out a little bit slowly and edited a little bit slowly, but it's fun to watch. Each, Each little moment is cool. One thing I think it does pay homage to the anime really well is Spike is noticing things in this scene. He's noticing small details. He sees the knife that Gunther has and has an acute awareness of like every moment of what's happening around him. On this podcast, we discussed a lot. Is Spike that engaged with his world and is he that aware or is he just really lucky? And I think this wants us to see a Spike that notices things and, yes, is very much on that level. As we go forward in this episode as well, right, as we are talking about his relationship with Jet a bit more, 
it is something that existed in the anime, but is definitely a different framing of his relationship. And I think that this highlights exactly that point where, oh yeah, the show is making a choice. Spike is observant. He sees the world and he's quick. He's not lucky. I would say that that's a direct translation from the series. I think I think the original series makes the case that he is uh, very good at sleight of hand, not lucky. He doesn't swallow that poker chip. It's a sleight of hand trick. He doesn't put the cigarette out and then swallow it. It's a sleight of hand trick. And for me, specifically the editing of the fight choreography, like that, that what's the word for it? Like a goofy nature that you can see in there is what I love about it. Like that's the that's the Bruce Lee Saturday afternoon karate movie that I'm watching. That's pretty clearly a love letter to that in my eyes as a kid who watched a lot of stuff like that as a kid being like, how are they moving so fast? And my dad going, so editing is a process by which they make things that aren't happening look like they are <laughs> happening. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. So you cut on the action and you make sure you don't double, you know, you don't double the action. Right. So I, for me, I really love that, specifically that scene where he's fighting with that uh, towel machine because I'm like, they haven't had that kind of towel machine anywhere in any country since 1979 which to me makes it feel like they went, okay, I want a bathroom from 1979. I want this fight to look like it's taking place in 1979, and we're going to edit it together like that. And it fits with the, I guess you could call them slapsticky uh, sound effects that are sometimes in there, like that very uh, wham-bam style feel that you have going on sometimes. Um, but I, I actually really like that they just get the spike and jet, like, yes, we're both afraid to tell each other that we love each other, but we totally love each other and we're very good friends and we work together. We're excellent partners. They get that out of the way right away, which again is just, it's a remixed direct translation of something from the series instead of making us wait seven episodes and, you know, then get, you know, pull it out of Jet's voiceover work. They just have it happen straight up. And then of course we get the physical demonstration of it with Jep standing on the bomb button and Spike pushing him off and taking his place again with a sleight of foot, I guess you would say, over sleight of hand. I will also say I really love this action sequence. It grew on me. I thought like, yeah, why would they use this towel? It's the future. But that's actually pretty eco-friendly once you think about it. Especially when you're on Venus and there probably isn't a whole lot of running water. (laughs) So Netflix does this weird thing that I thought was ambitious and it doesn't work where Tank gets cut into the scene, Jet gets hit in the face and falls, and we hear that bass line come in. I went, this is awesome. I love where this is going, how they're going to tie the music into the action sequences. But then because the Netflix intro is its own piece of skippable video, the capability just isn't there for that clean transition and tank starts over. So I was a little disappointed in that, if I'm honest. That start over really upset me. Yeah. The the fact that we got, it was the one bar, like what, four bars of it just hit and then go again was just uh, so close. It was so close. It makes me wonder if these things will be smoothed over if they ever do a physical release. I could see that. We then transition to the Bebop and shout out to the set dressing here. We've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan necessarily of Easter eggs and references just for the sake of making references. But when they're seamlessly built into the set, I like them a lot more. And we get the like bag of frozen bell peppers on the table. And I felt very much like that person going, hooray, they said the line, the bell peppers, yay. I'm also really digging the ship again. 
I found out recently that set designers actually bought an old fishing trawler and overhauled it to put the Bebop set in it. And I think that's amazing. They did such a great job. Uh, one of the things I love about this set and really like every every piece of tech and every environment that they've built for this show so far has been incredible. The physical nature of hardware. I'm, I'm a big, I, I have a mechanical keyboard when I type stuff. It makes clicky clacky noises that annoy everybody in a three mile radius. I love that. Every little switch that jet, jet flips down, every corner of the Bebop is just littered with buttons and gadgets and little blinking lights that just make me feel like, hmm, you did the work. Uh, one of the things, I believe this was in the anime too, they had somebody specifically designing interfaces for each of the ships. Like, it's not just a touchscreen. It's not the Star Trek L cars, right? It's, it's a screen, but it's got buttons on the side still, and the screen will change, but you have to touch in order to touch which button. That's this Bebop tactile universe, and that makes me feel really happy that the show is reflecting that. This scene also serves as more jet and spike tension along with them realizing that they can go ahead and examine the hand and get a lead on what uh, Teddy Bomber's up to and where he's getting his stuff. So I do think that the Bebop still serves as the setting ground that we often see in the anime too. So they're leveraging the scene correctly. Then we transition to Spike storming out for noodles and that goes into this beautiful shot of the city skyline, which I personally adore. And then the swordfish, which is just super hot. Give me that. I'm so glad they made this so true to the original and that they also made the ignition key like more reasonably sized. <laughs> Them keeping the ships literal was one of the one to one things that I appreciated. I just wanted to see a real life version of exactly my desk mounted swordfish toy. And I got it. Thank you. Loving it. I want to take the conversation back to Easter eggs for a moment, though, because we enter Anna's and I am confident that I have missed an Easter egg here. One of the things that Jamie and I started doing rewatching is noticing moments that we know are supposed to be referencing something. And we're like, oh, we don't know what it is, though. There are moments that reference Blade Runner, War Games. They're not just going back to the anime they're throwing in all of their favorite influences, some not even necessarily relevant to Bebop. In this case, there is a gun that is checked in at the front desk and the gun is put on a shelf and the camera just hangs on it. It wants you to see that gun. <laughs> and I was trying to make out what was said on it. I typed out WT1B8WE. That could be wrong because I only took one swing at it. I just know it's meant to be something. Jesse's got his hand raised. That immediately looks like an approximation of the word Watanabe. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel the the gold and laid gun is something, right? It's 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 a I, I don't know what it is either. I, I'm right there with you where I have it's definitely referring to someone. But who? Watanabe's possible, but Watanabe already got his flowers in the first 15 seconds. You're right. The creator should only get one reference throughout the entire series. That makes good sense. <laughs> yes, and no more. Yeah. None, none after. Zero after. <laughs> I, for me, I, I think that there's probably some shots in there that are not for us, right? Like there are probably references that are a filmmaker going, oh, my, my filmmaker buddies see this, they'll know that that's me saying, hey, or somebody I went to film school with, or, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that 
I felt like was uh, were tonal Easter eggs or like stylistic Easter eggs to remind us, yeah, it's totally bebop. That one in particular, I think I missed it. I basically am just saying our listeners at home cannot count on us to get 100% of them. We were told by Kim on our last episode that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of references they snuck in. And we know from the material that's publicly available, some are virtually invisible. Geek check us on Twitter, y'all. It's (laughs) fine, but we're not here to be the fact listing show. We would be delighted if you know what this gun is supposed to mean. Let's open this can of worms. Gren looks fantastic. Mm. I absolutely adore Mason's performance. They exude confidence and I'm instantly drawn to them as the host of Anna's. And I'm so pleased we got to chat with them before this because I think it really colored my experience of watching this scene. One of the things that I felt really grateful for, having already met Mason, we know you're listening, baby. Thank you so much. Their tattoo is kept. That is their real tattoo on their collarbone. Mason has the word gender and it's crossed out. And I think it's a huge choice on the part of this show to be like, we know what the fan discourse has been. We know all of the transphobic, toxic stuff that's been out there. We're just going to let this image stay on this person's body. That is intentional for sure. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I've been worried about in going through the original series is that knowing vaguely that that is not handled particularly well in a modern context and and seeing that hey as we're remaking this oh we are addressing the problems that we've seen and we are not just like fixing the problem we are celebrating right the changes that have happened since then and it seems to be thankfully one of the few points that everyone is agreeing on from the discourse that i've seen is that Mason's performance is 100% one of the high points of this show. Whether you like the show or dislike the show as a whole, Mason has been receiving a lot of well-deserved praise so far, and I love to see that. And I'm, I gotta say, it is very refreshing to not have to encounter the other side of that, which is kind of what I was... I, it's not that I was expecting it, it's that I knew it would be present, and I'm glad that it isn't uh, as loud as I had expected it to be. So we know right away that this portrayal is not anime Gren. I want to very much express that I do love live action Gren. I think this was a really smart decision to write this character, give them their own backstory. But why not also give them an original name? So why do you think the writers felt it necessary to represent Gren at all if their backstory or this kind of setting is so very different? Uh, In the literal sense, I truly feel they're probably saving that for season two. I will eat my hat if that ends up being wrong and they just decide that's not a part of this universe, but they have to save some major plot arcs for later. And we've already seen the big free Titan painting in episode one. I think they're teasing more Titan War stuff later. In terms of why portray Gren as non-binary when the character originally wasn't necessarily conceived that way. This is one of the places where I believe throwing one-to-one in the garbage is important. People love on the internet to push like, Ed is a girl. She says so. Well, yeah, in the anime, she did. Uh, And in the anime, 
Gren's sex was altered because of a war crime. It wasn't necessarily something that Gren wanted to happen or was grateful had occurred. But I just ask the people at home, even though that's true in the anime, in 2021, can you not see why sex tampering or gender alteration or anything in that vein might be harmful to today's audiences? Can you just step back and say, no, it's not the same, but do I understand why that might be harmful? Can I imagine a person who would be hurt by that? For that person, they changed the show and it's great. I think that's a wonderful choice. And so that choice was made for a reason that I think is good. Anna's is hot. I want you all to join me there for a drink sometime. Uh, I want to be there every night and enjoy the seatbelts performing live on stage. Uh, This is a fantastic set and it's got really great energy that it adds to the show overall. We'll book table eight, right? All of us, table eight. That's our table. Tamara Tooney is just serving this whole time. Great casting. Mm -hmm. Even though Annie was in the anime, she was sort of a corner store, convini owner type. And I think giving her this power is a great addition to the story. Well, and it fits well with what we know uh, about what goes down at Anna's. You know, there's there's uh, some fighting. There's some alcohol. Uh, there's there's secrets, there's stories about the past. So that's just a description of a bar. So for them to make the decision, let's just put her in a bar. That is, is it makes sense. It's it's a good decision. It's maybe an easy decision, but it's still the right one. And not just a bar, the bar, the bar. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is what and and that might be the second space outside of the um couch on the bebop that I want to hang out the most in, personally. We then transfer to Jet, because he's been left at home, and he's still on the case. He's reading the manifesto. This is a change that I'm I'm less a fan of. The original Teddy Bomber's manifesto was very much about capitalism and the dangers of modern greed. And this guy touches on it some, But it's very much framed like he's just this unhinged psycho and he never gets his moment to really declare who he is or why he's done this. That could be the punchline because in his original story, he never gets to say so either. But we do meet Teddy Bomber this time around. It's definitely not the same guy. Well, also, he's like prohibited of speaking like through the mask. So I guess in that way, they've conveyed that. You're right. He doesn't get his big reveal at the end of Cowboy Andy's episode, which I thoroughly enjoy. But we already kind of got the capitalist rant through Renji in episode one, and I don't think we need to see that again. This is one of those remixes that I do disagree with in that in the original with Teddy Bomber, his the whole joke on Teddy Bomber at the end of that episode is that no one listens to him. And the fact that this fight between Andy and Spike escalates to the point where no one is listening to Teddy Bomber makes the whole thing cohesive. One of the things I've been thinking of is that expanding the running time of this show, I think, is a mistake. As much as I want more of Cowboy Bebop, I think going for uh, 44 minutes instead of 22 is pushing beyond the bounds a little too much. And then by reinserting characters that did not, that there were cohesively part of that t- tight 22-minute show and, and remixing them in a way that doesn't quite fit just so that we fill these 50 minutes 
makes it feel a little empty, makes it feel like it's now missing that glue. I feel like there probably isn't much space for a 22 minute show on TV right now. And especially on Netflix, where they're going to release this as a binge model. If they, if these episodes were 22 minutes, you could binge the entire series in four hours. And ask me how I know that, because how many times have I been through the original anime series, right? <laughs> and you don't, it doesn't, it just happens. You'll, you'll put on episode one, Asteroid Blues, and then 20 minutes later, or what feels like 20 minutes later, you'll look up and you're three quarters of the way through the series, right? They could not have that with this, considering the money that was spent and the the emotional investment that they knew that people would make with this thing. I I actually I like this disagreement between Jet and Spike while they're reading the or they're supposed to be reading the manifesto, because it kind of gives you that same conflict that Andy and Spike had. Right. Let's argue about the guy as though he's not in the room. Now, in this case, he's not physically in the room, but his manifesto is in the room and the threat of him is in the room. And speaking of the Teddy Bomber himself with the mask, I think that was a fun addition to, to put him in underwear and a mask. It really boils that character down to just he's absurd, but he is still a threat. And that makes him a problem. Jet butchers the bonsai tree. Uh, R.I.P. He's not any better at this hobby in this iteration. Something I do love a lot from this scene is the Pink Panther-inspired song that's in the background. Uh, Yoko Kano bringing some fun homage to the new tracks. So other details they chose to put in. The chemical in the bombs is called vaccium nitrate. This is not a real thing. And my pet theory is that once we started exploring further out into the solar system, we also had to expand the periodic table of elements and Vaxium beginning with a V kind of maybe implies something found on Venus. I don't know. I'd like to know more about how they how they thought about that, if they thought about it at all. The planetary weather channel is on in the background during jet scene. The news stories include a KVS-12 meteorite is projected to leave Mars orbit. Falling rocks will end in two weeks and a new black hole has formed. And the places that were bombed by Teddy Bomber so far were called Ishtar City Hall, Venusian Symphony and the Delphini Museum. The show makes the choice to cut back and forth between Anna and Jet. This kind of like framing of Jet being alone, his partner leaving him, but Spike being out actually trying to drum up old ties, right? He's looking for help to his assassin problem. He goes to Anna's and Anna's obviously startled to see who was dead alive three years ago. And she slugs him right in the face. We see in this scene, by the way, that Julia and Vicious are married. I know for those of us who have been through the show now, that's kind of old news, but this is when it gets revealed. How did you guys feel about that the first time it was dropped? That was an ick moment. It, it felt kind of icky. Like, like it's like, ah, uh, ah. Uh, uh, was, was, I think that's, that's my emotional state when that was revealed. It, it was the first, the first thing that I saw where I went, whoa, that is really jarring. Because what? And excuse me? Um, but then I started thinking about it and I went, actually, it fits because we know in the anime that they had some kind of relationship and that uh, Spike's 
presence in that relationship definitely caused a problem there. So it's not, yes, it is a different presentation of those characters, um, but it doesn't ruin that for me. It definitely is new. I guess I think that it's probably a result of trying to expand on that character, the character of Julia, without just giving her more flashbacks, I guess. I probably, as far as a noir tale goes, I like Julia's uh, archetype to be more of a mysterious character, a la the original series, but I could see why they would choose this as opposed to in, you know, nine or ten episodes going, also, here's a character you should care about because Spike cares about her. I totally understand the choice to get us to invest in her a little more early on in the series. I actually really liked them being married, and then it fell apart for me because I got ahead of myself. I assumed they were married because we were aging up this entire story. At this point in my first watch through, what I assumed was happening was we were going all in and saying, Spike's in his 40s or 50s, so is everyone. This is old news. Like, Julia and Vicious got together a long time ago. We're all older now. And this stuff is finally going to come back to haunt us. I was ready for it. Thought it was a great choice. And then they revealed, no, that was all three years ago. They're doing exactly the anime timeline. And so I started writing fanfic a little early, I guess. <laughs> There's a lot about this that doesn't sit well because it fundamentally changes character motivations. Um, like Jet not knowing Spike's past like him knowing would, quote, break him in some fashion. I think anime Jet doesn't want to know. And if he finds out, he's just going to be like, well, that was all in the past. As he says on the ship, don't know and have no opinion. Yeah, one, one of the things that this show has done that, and, and maybe this is just across the board, uh, the show has re removed the mystery, right? In a lot of ways that were probably a little too heavy handed. Uh, maybe part of that is like, like we've been talking about a part of that is compressed for time, right? We, we've got 10 episodes. It's, we don't want to wait till episode nine, 13 to figure out some of these things, but some of it also feels like they don't trust the audience as much. It's almost as if they're saying, Hey, we don't believe that you're going to remember who Julia is in five episodes. So we better put her right in front of you, right? We, we don't think that you'll understand that Jet and Spike don't know each other's past. So we're going to talk about it constantly right that those those choices hurt the the feeling maybe they maybe they hurt the feeling if you're going in expecting to get the same thing from this that you got from the anime but consider the opposite option which i would say is Danny Villeneuve's dune he gave no backstory he just put you there and said, here's what's happening. If you read the story or you had seen the prior movie, you're like, oh, okay, I know who that is. I know what that is. I know why this is happening. I get that. If you hadn't, you've no idea what happened in the movie Dune. Like you've, you've, there was no narrative. So I guess, I guess I'm saying, I think they did a better job of walking the line partway through those two um, versions, but I totally agree that they probably for lack of a better term, dumbed some of it down, right? And in the saddest way, they probably had to. Like, audiences now are not how they were in 1998. We're not going to be watching this series in the same way that we would have watched the anime, even if we weren't, you know, binging that. So it, 
there is some part of me that wonders, like, did they feel the constraints of a newer audience and bow to some of those things? Well, then that begs the question, why choose this property at all? Why not just make your own new space Western? I think we'd. I think we all know the answer to that question money. is money. Yes. Money, money, money. Yeah. Give me them woos. Yeah. <laughs> Piles of woolongs. <laughs> so the elders want a word with Vicious in the middle of the night when Vicious is shirtless. And is he? Yes. They personally called us on the phone and they said, you guys, what would you like in the new Cowboy Bebop? And Jamie said, Vicious without clothes. And they did it. And Alex Hassel delivered. (laughs) I actually think it's really silly. Like, there's no reason for this time to be when this scene takes place. It is just to see him without a shirt. But I can't say I'm upset by it. They do this like Mass Effect style uh, teleportation of the two of them into the room with the elders. And we get to hear the voices of these characters. Their names are Caliban, Miranda, and Prospero. And Caliban is actually John Noble. And that is uh, an actor from Lord of the Rings who you might recognize if you Google his name. The line has ended. <laughs> yes. And they were in New Zealand, so they had to get John Noble. (laughs) (laughs) So right away, another change. We're seeing new elders. Um, They've chosen to rename them, and uh, they don't sound like twins or triplets in any way. But also they're keeping these masks around so that we're having some kind of like oriental texture and overlay. And this just screams like 90s, hey! Have you heard about this anime thing? Do you know about Japanese pop culture? Cool Japan, y'all. And I I was not having that. Really? I love the I love the syndicate masks. I thought to me they were a clear conceit. They went, how do we get 200-year-old men onto a, a live action TV screen? Well, you don't. But if you give them a mask that indicates like, hey, look, this is your elder. They're super old. Just go with the mask thing. Then that's fine. And it gives you the anonymity you would want if you're the head of a ruthless, bloodthirsty criminal organization. I I saw it as definite like one frame thing. I don't know that I appreciated hearing the voices actually come out of the masks, to your point. But just as like a a image of you know, these are powerful people. I actually liked the conceit of them, you know, we're not even going to look at you. We're going to be behind this this layer. And it gives them an excuse to fit that image from the original series in, like I said, without trying to find 200-year-old uh, Asian actors, which, you know, are, there's probably a shortage of. <laughs> They're looking for work. I'm sure you can find some if you look hard enough. All actors are looking for work right now, I would think. <laughs> True, yeah. Uh, one of the things I did like was that it gave me a very hotline Miami vibe. If you're familiar with that video game where we're bloodthirsty killers, but because we wear these masks, we can kind of get away with it. I agree with the anonymity angle, especially based on what they ask Vicious to do. For all intents and purposes, everyone in the room believes Vicious is asked to kill his wife. And if someone threatens you with that level of of life-changing criminal violence, if Vicious saw one of those guys in a Starbucks later, <laughs> it would it would not be okay. So like they're allowed to push these buttons and make these threats because their identities are hidden. And we will see more of that in a future episode. I'd like to take this moment to point out that 
acting and writing are different things. I am not a big fan of a lot of the Vicious and Julia scenes, but I don't think it's about the acting. I think these actors are pretty good. And my evidence is Julia. She does a lot of acting here without any words. She really seems caught in the middle. She really seems frightened. She really seems like this is not my business and yet I'm stuck here. You can almost imagine, you know, what must be running through her head. I think she acts the hell out of it. And the beef people have with the number of syndicate scenes or the pace of syndicate scenes, that's not the same as acting. And I just want to put a pin in like, I like the acting. I think it's I think it's solid even when the material they are given sometimes doesn't match their skill. Yeah, I think I think they just missed the the line of melodrama versus overacting. Right? Like like it appears as overacting because the dialogue did not quite hit the amount of melodrama they were aiming for in that scene, right? It it became I think we brought up soap opera earlier, right? It it, it became soap opera. Space opera? Sure. Space opera. <laughs> so we'll come back to this because we're doing it in chronological order. But I truly believe Vicious's willingness to sacrifice Julia would have been enough to send her away. If I were her and saw him make that choice, I would go, oh, I see where I rank in his life. I'm not OK. It's not safe for me here anymore. And that would have been enough. Remember that I said that in just a minute. <laughs> so this scene, it, this is when I knew they did my boy dirty. Vicious is asking for forgiveness. He would never, never. I know anime Vicious is a weird psychopath with like, he's just so over the top and just out there and we're trying to humanize him in some way, but he would never, ever, ever ask for forgiveness. And I'm also trying to wonder if this scene is intended to be formative to his character. Because at one point he's asking like, no, I don't want to kill my wife. Take my hand instead. Because immediately when he's like begging for Julia's life, take my hand instead. Then he chooses to shoot, probably knowing that they'd both be dead if he didn't do it. So like they're trying to portray some empathy. I honestly believe he doesn't want Julia to die. Um, but anime Vicious definitely just does not give fucks. It's an exact opposite of his introduction, right? In in the enemy, the first thing he does is a horrendous betrayal of the, the triads, right? It, it's this cold, bloodthirsty move for power. This is not that. This is simpering. <laughs> Shout out to Angela, our editor and associate producer, who upon viewing this episode texted us to say, my favorite part is how they turned Vicious into a little pee-pee man. <laughs> <laughs> he was always that, if I may. <laughs> Depends on your definition of little pee-pee man. 100%. <laughs> Jamie's got a lot of Vicious feelings, but we have one more thing to get through, and that is the Teddy Bomber plot. We were watching this with our friends a couple days ago. It was my third viewing of this episode. And my friend Steven asked, oh, are we going to see VT? And I was so disappointed to be like, no, this is not a VT episode. They're showing us the trucks, yes. And Jamie believes that this is supposed to be sort of a Teddy Bomber, Decker sort of merger character here. And VT would have been 
awesome. Like even if they made VT the owner of this truck yard here, great. But they didn't go with that choice. They went with uh, just a, a background guy. And he has a mug that says, boss, I want that very badly. Please send me one. There's actually like a through line in this show of mugs that say novelty messages. Chalmers has a mug that says, I drink coffee for your protection. (laughs) What a weird gift they've given us with these mugs. I I, got to say, I had the same reaction. I was like, is this the truck? Am I going to see VT? Am I about to get heavy metal queen? And I'm I'm holding out hope. Uh, I think that heavy metal queen um, could be expanded into its own entire movie, personally. Um, if you'd like to watch that movie, it's called Space Sweepers, and it's on Netflix, and it's really, really good. <laughs> um, definitely go check that out. But I, the the ship, the look of the ship, once they're inside and they're in front of that, um, the circular door, right, with the different colored running lights on it, the visuals in this episode, I loved from start to finish. There, There were no shots to me that felt... I don't know if unnecessary is the word, but this shot for me, this last scene of of them fighting the Teddy Bomber is like one of my favorite shots in the first four episodes that I've seen. The construction of it, the composition of the shot is beautiful. The back and forth chaotic nature with them screaming at each other. He's screaming in the background, trying to get their attention and just shapes and colors and sounds assault me from every angle in the most bebop way in this scene. And that's what I mean when I say the tone is 100% spot on. They're not always using the same dialect, but they're speaking the right language and their tone is 100% on for me. I also really appreciate the toys in the attic vibes we're getting in this episode. Mm. It was just like, let's let's just throw in a pinch of that. Jesse made a point earlier in this episode that some of the Easter eggs might be for the production crew themselves. And I want to take a moment to ask anyone who's listening who worked on the show to please at us how many of these stores or products that are named after first names, who are they? Like, are they people you know? There's even uh, in this lotion in the basket, gross Silence of the Lambs reference. There's Dwight's lotion. Who is Dwight? We see episodes later where just whole streets of storefronts are named after people. I want to know whose kids those are, whose brothers those are. Please tell us. Oh, I want to know who Kudo is. We didn't we didn't bring it up at Anna's, but Kudo Kudos. When can we buy that on the shelf? Right. When when can we get the novelty bottle of kudos with the little spigot? I was truly shocked to not see kudo sent out in those like gift bags that some people got. I really thought they were going to go for it. It's a beautiful bottle. Mm-hmm. I collect decanters and I was like, mm, want Netflix. Make that happen, please. One of the things. So to, to counter my complaint about the writing earlier, I love the writing here between Spike and Jet. When they're entering the truck for the first time and they say, are, are we doing a B&E or a, what was it, a B&E or a knock, something like that? Or, and it's like, well, you do the B and I'll do the E. Right? And it's just like, hmm, the, the streamlining, we understand what they're doing. We understand that they have a relationship that goes back a long time and they know what part to play here. It's also probably the first time that the humor between them really clicked for me. The you got to hand it to them from earlier didn't really land. but the uh, the the pointing towards the cockpit bit, I loved. I, that that just worked for me really well for some reason. I personally think that that might be a moment 
that's a that's an inflection point, I think, for people when you're watching this series because that is comparable to a Marvel film joke. Like that is something that Star Lord would say to you know Thor, like, "Hey, I've done this before." Let's do, and Thor going, "No, I know what's right because I'm better than you." It it felt very like contemporary, right? It felt like mm-hmm. a lot of humor that I see on TV and movies now. And if if that doesn't bug you seeing that in Bebop, I think you're good to go. Personally, I, I think that's I think that's a, an inflection point right there. And to your point, Andrew, I loved that moment because mm-hmm. it was quintessentially Jet and Spike. That's what they yes. do. They disagree on method. They always agree with you know making money and being good people, but they always disagree on method. And really quickly, before I lose the opportunity to say it, I have to mention, I don't know how I failed to mention it, Jet's scarf at the start of this episode, absolute fire. This whole suit is on point. Mm. A couple other lines from this awesome set of dialogue that I want to point out. When they're going through like a debris field or asteroids, whatever that is, Spike says, we have been through a hundred of these, and that very much builds their rapport without spending more than a sentence there to do so. I think that's a great just writing technique in general. But on the flip side, Spike says, I'm there when it counts, when he's literally not. (laughs) He has proven by this episode already that he will abandon or even sabotage Jet to a degree that I think even surpasses the anime this spike seems even more self-centered and also more concerned with the syndicate. I forgot Mm -hmm. to bring it up earlier, but in this episode, he says messing with the syndicate will get us dead. Like he doesn't want to do it. And I feel that's pretty counter to the whatever happens, happens. I feel like anime spike, if the syndicate came upon him, he would deal with it. He wouldn't love it, but he didn't necessarily run. And this spike is meddling a little bit more. He's trying more, in my opinion, to control and delay when those encounters happen. And he will do that to the point of disappointing his partner. But to keep his partner safe at the end of the day. In his his opinion. Yeah, but I mean, he doesn't want Jet getting mixed up with assassins. It makes sense, but I agree with you. It, It does make for a less chill spike. Yeah, the tragic flaw of many of the characters that we will see throughout this series is wanting to keep other people safe and their ability or inability to do so. But that is spoiler country. Oh, no. I mean, that's the premise of Cowboy Bebop. So I'm not going to be mad at you for spoiling that this time. (laughs) (laughs) But we can hope, right? Like we can hope it's a different story, right? I hope it's not. I didn't (laughs) didn't come here to see the the rainbow at the end of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or the pot of gold at the end of Rainbow version of Cowboy Bebop, personally. Um, but if that happens, whatever. Like, I still have the old series to go back to. Whatever happens, happens. There won't be a pot of gold there, <laughs> but there will be something, my friend. Something different. I am intrigued. <laughs> so in between the construction site scenes, we get a shot of Vicious in his home. And Julia's having it at him. She's upset reasonably. And as Lauren said earlier, that's enough to leave. Like, if he's going to shoot you, like, just pack your bags, lady. And he's also making excuses, saying the gun wasn't loaded. I know because the weight was off. This is not vicious. I just want to interject and be clear. When I said that, it was not victim blaming. 
people stay in abusive relationships for a very long time because they're complicated. I wasn't telling her to pack her bags necessarily or putting that on her. I was saying maybe the writing didn't need to go as far as it does right now to prove to us that Vicious is a bad dude. Thank you. Please continue. And this is my core thesis as to why Cowboy Bebop's writing for the live action is just so rough. It's out there. The anime constantly raised the stakes and felt very mature overall. That's why so many anime fans love it. But it never needed to stoop to domestic violence or other gratuity to make its point. That wasn't the entertainment part to Cowboy Bebop for me. It was the interplay of characters' relationships. It was like the somber, bittersweet endings of all the bounties. And the show doesn't seem to know that. Yeah, it's missing some of that subtlety, right? It, it's it, I, I, This might just be a symptom of what we were talking about earlier, where we're trying to expand this to a wider audience that we don't trust. And that is in the world of, yeah, like we were talking earlier, we don't have time for a 22 minute show. We would dismiss that. We don't have, we have too many other distractions. I got to watch Dune tomorrow instead of watching Cowboy Bebop. You know, uh, Star Trek just came out. I'm very excited to watch the new season, but there are too many distractions that pull us away. So as a counter, we've written this series in a way that is, yeah, like we said earlier, dumbed down. It seems to be written almost as a pick it up, put it down. You can have it on. Doesn't matter if you watched every single scene sort of a thing. I feel like I am willing to cut this show a lot of slack because I was willing to cut the original series a lot of slack. It's The original series is, yes, it takes itself seriously, but it's goofy. It's laden with 100% tropes. There are almost no original ideas in it, right? It's just a new, uh, more stylistic, genre-based presentation of those things. The, the work will become a new genre of itself, right? So the question that I would ask is, what kind of power could canon possibly hold over improvised jazz? Like, especially when you're translating it between media. I don't think that there's a correct way to watch Cowboy Bebop, obviously. But for me personally, if I can enjoy it, I'm going to find a way to do that. And I feel like they gave me enough pieces, at least personally. So the conversation that I am having in this moment is not about canon. It is about enjoyment, as you just said. Right. You use the word enjoyment, and I think what I am able to enjoy is where this moment really kicks me in the tits. <laughs> so I don't love shock media. I don't love how much rape was injected into Game of Thrones just for the sake of adding it. Um and I love swearing. I love violence. I love boobies. Like you could put those in Cowboy Bebop and I will be delighted if they serve the story, if they teach us something about the characters, if they push the plot forward in a necessary way. And I don't feel we needed to see domestic violence to prove a point about Vicious that was already proven. So some of your points about the modern audience and the way we see television today, I do think those are true. I agree with them. I think some of this stuff is just injected for shock. And I was never here for shock media, 100%. regardless of if it's a beloved franchise that I've worshipped for decades or a brand new show. We've, we've grown past refrigerator, right? Or what, what's the phrase? Fridging. <laughs> Right. We've we've grown far past it. Yes. And I can I can 100 percent agree with that. And I don't 
I hope that I have not come across as going, no, they had to have the domestic violence because that's definitely not my point. I 100% agree. There are, there are going to be choices made by the makers that we, we will simply either disagree with or not understand or understand and then disagree with, right? And I gotta, I'm going to have to agree with you there because for me, the fun part of Vicious was that he was very 2D, sorry for using that term, but he was very just a bad guy, right? Like I don't need a backstory on Vicious for the same reason I don't need a backstory on Michael Myers. He's just a bad guy who kills people. That's good enough for me. And maybe let him not wear a shirt. Yeah, right. it's fine. <laughs> yeah, if he needs to be shirtless, <laughs> then do as you will. I think everybody on the show will end up that way at some point with obviously the possible exception of Faye. Now, I and I say that because I don't know. I haven't finished the series yet. Um, but I agree with you that anytime something feels like it was put in for shock or specifically just to get people to talk about it, that's a, a lazy decision. I, I, I can agree with saying that's easily a lazy decision. They perform the hell out of it. I'll give you that. It did impact me in a very intense way. But as someone who is more sensitive to those kinds of topics, I just didn't find it fulfilling as a fan of Cowboy Bebop. Little peepee men choke women (laughs) (laughs) clearly and like why why does vicious need to be man enough like his power trip is enough to just throw him up the top and kill everybody his whole coup it was all power driven now let's make his pee pee small yeah the Mm. the emasculation stuff i mean we hadn't actually articulated that i don't think but the like don't ever say i'm not man enough that's a whole new insecurity that they added to that character it feels like vicious always had a you know, Spike thinks he's better than me and I hate that in him mm-hmm. sort of a thing. So you could maybe point it that way. But I agree that just in general, he doesn't need it to be there. Um, I I wonder if there is a tendency for writers of media that will be primarily consumed in America, if they're, if they're running out of room for nuance on things like that. Because like, can we show the, you know, nuanced masculine assassin character? Will people understand that? Or does he need to be you know, total douchebag. He hits women and, you know, chokes people and this, that, and the other thing. Whereas in the anime, it's like, no, we just get that he kills people. You know, he's he's very effective at his job. So I wonder if it wasn't some attempt for them to go, you know, let's show that that's still bad, but we have to overcorrect because now the audience isn't here for subtlety. <laughs> to conclude on a bright note, when we finally get rid of Teddy Bomber and we don't set off a booby trap and we're going to save the day when Spike and Jet see the escape pod and they both belly laugh together. (laughs) That is one of my favorite moments, not just in this episode, but in the entirety of Netflix Cowboy Bebop, them sort of relieving all of that tension and just letting their friendship shine through again and laugh at the absurdity of what's happened to them today injected into my veins that's the show i want to watch for sure that's that 4 a.m you're hanging out with friends outside the white castle and you're just like oh white castle and you're just like (laughs) yes what a weird day we've had i'm so glad that spike got his white castle finally (laughs) what is it with john cho and food rolls it's it's just like food and john cho go together (laughs) there's a moment where i could hear practically every gamer in the world yell put a crate on that trap Uh, I could see the I could see the entire Cowboy Bebop video game in this scene because if anything, 
Teddy Bomber not only read like Walter White to me, but Borderlands boss. I don't know if anyone's played Mm -hmm. Borderlands, but like the screeching Teddy in his underwear. (laughs) I know exactly what this video game looks like. I hope they make it. (laughs) So I have a question for for the end of this. Did they collect this bounty? I had the same question. Teddy Bomber was what, 1.5 million? Was that right? Did they knock him out or kill him? I would answer in the same way that I answered when my crew asked me, where is the end of the toys in the attic episode? It's all a fever dream. There was no resolution. It didn't happen. Like what happened at the end? And I told them, uh, clearly everybody lived because there's a next episode. It's fine. Don't don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) If we had to guess... I want to believe they got it because they were so deliberate about like, I'll go ahead, then I'll come back for you. And they had their next steps planned out. So I want to believe they got it. However, we see later that the ISSP does actually not want these bounties collected. So I could see the cops calling some technicality on them at the last second. I do think they physically brought him to the station, though. I believe Mm. they got that far. So you're saying we're set up for an Andy moment because Teddy Bomber is still out there. Maybe. Always potential for a second season. I think they turned him in, but in this show, anybody could get away. He could he could blow a hole in the side of the jail and come <laughs> back in season two for sure. It has been so awesome, so special hanging out with the Bebop podcast family tonight. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Andrew. If our listeners wanted to see more of your work, check out your podcast or whatever you wanted to plug. Where would you like them to go? Oh, sure. First, I want to thank you both for having us on. I would say you two are the premier place for Bebop podcastering, and I absolutely love listening to you guys every week. Uh, if you want to hear more from me and uh, my co-hosts, Michael and Lee Joe, we are building a tabletop RPG like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you can find us at Bebop Tabletop, which is, you know, a lot of pop sounds out of my mouth when I say it on Twitter. Uh, we have a podcast releasing on Mondays where we go through one episode at a time through the original anime and develop a game. And hopefully by the end, we'll have a game we can play. And hopefully by the end, We'll be inviting all of you on to play a game. I would love that. I was going to assert myself and say I want to be a playtester. So thank you for inviting me before I just did that and barged in. Oh, no problem. (laughs) Yeah. And I will go ahead and say as a obvious large Cowboy Bebop fan, uh, I have listened to both of your shows, uh, Andrew, your show, as well as Jamie and Lauren's show. The thing that I like about your show, Andrew, is I am not a tabletop RPG gamer. Um, I have friends that are really into it and I'm trying to learn some pieces of it through osmosis so that I can at least talk to him about it and not seem like, Hey, can you start from scratch with me? Um, and your show is a beautiful way for me to do that because it takes a thing that I am very familiar with and a thing that I am not very familiar with. And it puts those two things right together. So I'm, I'm learning a how to tabletop game in the first place. And I get to think about bebop. And I, I gotta say, I really like the translations that you guys do from, you know, uh, uh, plot to mechanic, I think is just, is masterful. So well done there. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> if, For whatever reason, I haven't turned you all completely off with my discussion tonight. Uh, Go find me on Twitter at Sudden But. Follow me on Instagram at Sudden But Inevitable Podcast. You can find Sudden But Inevitable anywhere you find podcasts. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, go there. 
If you would like to join the episode chats live, come to youtube.com slash twistmyarmpodcast every other Friday night at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. We have talked about Firefly. We have talked about Cowboy Bebop. We've talked about Highlander, Slither, uh, Space Sweepers. We've got Logan's Run coming up. Basically, what we do is we force our best friends through the gates that are being kept at the front of a fandom. So if that sounds like something that you might be interested in, please, please check out Sudden But Inevitable. I have to echo what Andrew said. Lauren, Jamie, your show is the show. This is the Bebop show. When I went I went on Twitter, I knew we were going to cover Bebop for our second season. And I went on Twitter and I typed in Cowboy Bebop. Netflix didn't pop up first. You know, Funimation didn't pop up first. You guys popped up first. I love listening to the Bebop beat, and I can't wait to listen to myself on the Bebop beat, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to cry. Thank you for that, Jesse. <laughs> it's been such a joy talking with you both tonight, and uh, we're so happy that you tune in to us. We can't wait to keep promoting your stuff. You're doing awesome stuff on the internet. I'm glad we're all internet pals. And uh, I think that concludes our episode tonight. Yeah, man. Coolest podcast family out there. I love that we can just all say yes and be on each other's shows and be friends. That means so much in a fandom that has some corners where I don't want to go. The podcast corner I want to hang out in forever. Thank you guys so much. Heck yeah. Thank you so much for having us. And I've had a blast with all of you. I got to say, it's felt like clear water. Thanks so much, listeners, for tuning in this week for another episode. Join us next week as we hang out with Charlie the Corgi and friends and discuss Dog Star Swing. Ow! <laughs> <laughs>